Welcome to Even Alex Liggins, the podcast. I am Alex Liggins, your host, and I'm excited that you chose today to tune in to hear real stories coming from real people exposing true transparency. Racism has been one of the topics that our world quite often debates over. I have the privilege of interviewing Jared Steele along with his wife, Carrie Steele, who are in prominent industries uh, that deals with this very concept. Um, I think it's interesting that we're able to have this conversation as a millennial, um, but also being able to really dissect uh, the word racism and what one another feels about it. Um, as you know, I am an African-American male. Uh, Jared is a Caucasian male, and his wife is a biracial female, black and white. Um, Jared, share with me a little bit about your thought process on racism and, quite frankly, racial uh, bias. Sure, yeah. I. It's it's been shaped by a lot of different things. I mean, I, I grew up in an environment where I came from a middle-class white family um, that spent a lot of time in the urban communities around Phoenix. Uh, went to Central High School, a very inner city school, um, where in fact I was a minority as a white kid. Um, and now in my work in I work in the Civil Rights Division at uh, the Attorney General's office. I deal with racial discrimination cases frequently and see how there is a great divide between um, what people find is associated to their race and what is associated to other factors that, that they struggle with or that they deal with on a daily basis. Um, and, and that is a, a major challenge for us because racism is such a polarizing issue. Um, there are people that feel very strongly that uh, our country does not have a racism issue. And then there are people on the exact opposite side that our, our country is extremely racist and it's systemic. Um, so uh, until we can actually have an open dialogue on what we mean by the terms we're using, it's really hard to find uh, common ground sure. on the issues. And so I think that's really what, like a, a genesis of the, of the major problems that we find on these discussions. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I think the concept of what is right and what is wrong is interesting enough, um, not really clear. I think there's a perception that Caucasians are right and their viewpoint is right and African-Americans' viewpoint is right. And there's this uh, tug of war of really trying to um, understand one another. Uh, Carrie, what are your thoughts being um, biracial and, and how, how do you feel 
um, being biracial and and how, and kind of where do you where do you kind of identify with? What do you identify with? I think our nation struggles with biracial issues because our nation so strongly wants to put everyone in a box. It doesn't matter whatever that box is, whether it's race, class, gender, socioeconomic status, uh, everybody has to have a label. And with that label, uh, you define yourself, which categorizes you into a group, and you associate with that group. And uh, it's a it's a crutch. It's something that we fall back on. It's people that we really have nothing in common besides this one thing that we just um, tend to fall back on and say, well, I identify with this person even though I don't know anything about them because we so badly want to be in a group, but not only just a group, but a powerful group. And so race comes into play with power because, I mean, since the beginning of time and till the end of time, there will always be a division in our population between whatever is going to be that dividing line of people. People will always look at somebody else and say, I have more power, more status than you because of X, Y, and Z. I think that really comes into play with being biracial because uh, both of the groups that I am, being Caucasian and black, they both have different um, definitions of what power looks like. They both have struggles with what power looks like on the offensive side and defensive side, um, both internally and externally. You know, what what is this supposed to mean to me? What is society telling me what it's supposed to mean, which is, the, I think, the biggest problem on both sides of those teams. Uh, but how am I supposed to act externally? What are people expecting me to do in these situations? There's just this, um, this coding that's going on, and it's an inner dialogue and an outer dialogue. And how am I supposed to interact with these group, this group of people and these people versus this entire other group? So one half of my family, both halves were extremely racist, <laughs> which is not okay. <laughs> not okay by any means, but hilarious to think that both sides can stand each other for really the same differences, which goes back to that whole power struggle. Um, but one side uh, said, you know, what, what benefits you in these kind of things? Because obviously in all of the um, things that we classify ourselves or the identifiers of race, gender, socioeconomic status, it is uh, how can I find gain in any of this? What can I use to benefit myself? And it's sad, truly, that we try to use something that we had no choice over you know, coming into this world to separate ourselves and to try to gain something out of this. And one side of the, the family said, okay, well, when going to college or the SATs or blah, 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 what box do you check? Well, it's not necessary. One half the family would say, well, what's going to make it better for you? What's more appealing? But really, uh, the overall kind of undertones of that was, well, who do you associate more strongly with? What are your family bonds? You know, like, are you one of us? What does that truly mean? And I think there's been a struggle my entire life before I really came to Jesus was, was who, who am I in what do people want me to be? Am I living up to, you know, my ancestors, like my great, great, great grandfather was a slave, you know, and my mother had me watch Emmett Till before mm -hmm. I was of age. She had me watch, um, the, uh, gosh, I can't think of it, but just different kinds of videos, strange fruit videos. And I was, I was eight to 10 and that was extremely alarming for an eight to 10 year old. But my mother wanted to begin a conversation because she felt she had previously been pulled over while being black 
She had some negative experiences with with police, even though she came from middle class kind of background where she, you know, didn't really have to fear like the Fresh Prince. He didn't have to fear, you know, um, the police, except when it came to the fact where they pulled Will and Carlton over while they were going to a ski trip. And because they're black, you know, Uncle Phil had to come down and Uncle Phil's a big time lawyer. And and that that is that is sadly, you know, that's a part of that. My mom wanted to say, hey, even though you guys have lighter skin than others, this is a reality. And you guys need to not only live above reproach, but you need to play their game. Mm -hmm. You need to play the game of what what uh, whatever that looks like, just so that you can come home alive. She would say that often, just so you can come home alive. My father's side of the family never had to deal with anything like that. If anything, my grandfather has never seen me because uh, he was not, disappointed is the lightest way I can say it, mm-hmm. that he that my father married my mother and then had us, uh, which at first was something that I really struggled with in elementary school because, I mean, I didn't do anything wrong. And it didn't come about until I was in my mid-20s and I had another cousin say, you know, our family's extremely racist and that's why you were kind of pushed away. And I thought, oh, they just didn't like us or, you know, we're from California, so we're weird or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, what's great about our generation is that we're starting to have these, what were previously conceived as awkward conversations where there are racial tensions. And our, (laughs) for better or for worse, our our generation uh, has a lack of filter. And we are more than willing to have these confrontational conversations. And uh, what there's good and there's bad about both sides of that coin. But I think that the more we have these conversations, the more we'll be able to understand uh, where each other's coming from. And for those that don't have to check boxes, they can start to identify with those that do have difficulty checking boxes. That's interesting that you say checking the box um i'm curious there's there's this movement that says uh black lives matter um or or black excellence uh jared what are what are some things that come to mind when you hear those terms well it's it's associating with a specific group um it's when I hear it as a white person, it's it's a dividing line. It's I'm not associating based off of my citizenship to this country mm-hmm. or my vocation or all the other ways you can identify. It's specifically because of my race. And just me personally, I have an, I have just a general aversion to it because I know that there are so many different experiences for any race. Like, uh, I, I know we kind of talked about this before, but the idea that Colin Powell's children have the same black experience as somebody who grew up on the south side of Phoenix. Yeah. Like, no, th- that, those experiences were completely different. Um, and, and, and so I, I have this, my thought initially is, well, I don't really know what black excellence necessarily looks like because in one context it's somebody who's overcome incredible obstacles and for somebody else it's somebody who just kind of went along with their own environment like 
for Colin Powell's son, it probably wasn't hard to just kind of go with the flow sure. and get good grades and get a good job that his, his dad was able to help him get. Um, and I, I'm not denying them any merit in, in what they achieved, but I'm saying that the excellence looks different in different scenarios. The person who overcomes incredible obstacles uh, by not having a father around and by trying to overcome the, the terrible school system that they grew up in and the lack of direction that they got during their formative years has a lot of excellence in just achieving some of the basic things that we do in everyday life, like having a stable job, getting married, having children, um, uh, providing for them, and being a constant and consistent influence in their kids' lives. So the, the problem with the category is that it can look so different, even within the context of race. Mm-hmm. For, for, for black people, for one black person, it could look completely different than for somebody else. So I feel like the, the term is too broad because it doesn't exactly identify how we might see it in different contexts. And in the context of being privileged, do you think that there's any sense of being privileged, being Caucasian? I, I think it exists in every race. Um, and, and, and in the United States, I think you could make a good argument that in a lot of contexts, in a lot of the part of, con- of the country, um, you can have certain advantages for being white. Um, and I, I think it exists even for black people in certain contexts. Mm. I think it exists for Asian people in certain contexts. You can take examples like uh, one, of the, one of the things that's going on right now is there's an investigation into some of the Ivy League schools um, about the success rates in testing and uh, academic prowess of Asian students and, and whether or not they are being, uh, I guess it would be reverse, um, uh, what's the term that they use for, uh, for uh, giving advantages to minorities in academic uh, situations, uh, where essentially they're denying Asian students that have high test scores um, because it's so common among Asian students. Um, and, and so I, I do think that the, the term white privilege exists in certain contexts, but I think it's been way too overbroadly used because uh, the great example that Carrie and I have, have researched and studied is, is through the book Hillbilly Elegy, where the author talks about his own experience as a white man growing up in an, in an area of the, of the country where he really didn't experience any advantages because of his whiteness. Wow. He grew up in a, in a rough circumstance in a poor community um, with really no advantages um, and a lot of ignorance surrounding him. And uh, it's, it's hard to put him into a white privilege category based off of his life experiences. So I, I always have a hard time using that word liberally because 
it ignores so many other factors that come into play that affect people's lives. For instance, individual decision-making, um, the decisions that our parents have made that affect our lives. All those different things have a huge role on the trajectory of our lives. Um, the, the, the Bible even refers to it, like the, the sins of the father affecting their offspring and the generations to come. There's a reality to that, um, and I and I, I don't want I don't want to espouse an ideology that denies that, because it is hugely important that we have personal responsibility in our decisions. Um, I, I've worked in the system a bit, um, just in in my experience as a government lawyer. Um, I've studied it pretty uh pretty seriously and and i i don't necessarily see an overarching systemic uh, uh culture or government framework that that fosters a white privilege but there are instances that are undeniable where the appearance of a person has an Im a direct impact on how they're treated but i don't think that has a blanket effect on what people experience. Um, I think there are way too many factors to attribute it solely to a white privilege experience. So in a sense, me personally being African-American on the other side, I see sometimes the writing on the wall. I see that and have experienced racism blatantly, whether that's very subtle, whether that's very aggressive. Um, and speaking to those very same experience to Caucasians, they may feel that, no, that, that wasn't, that didn't happen. Or maybe, in fact, it was just something that you felt. How do you address those things, and what do you think can really, um, what do you think, what do you think about those feelings and that perception and what they're thinking in that situation? Hopefully first what I'm doing is loving the person, mm -hmm. um, loving them through uh, not only my words, um, but trying my best to, um, to, to communicate my love through uh, the way that I listen. Um, it's so easy in every conversation to focus solely on what I'm prepared to say once they're done talking. Wow. That's just, I mean, in any conversation, that's a, that's a human temptation, sure. is to just focus on what my response is going to be. And, and I've had some experience in some of these conversations where my my focus was on my response and not in showing the person that I love them by the way that I'm listening to them. Um, and as a white man, I, I can't I can't ever say that I know what it's like to experience um, what it what it means to be a black person in the United States. That's a physical impossibility. Um, but, there, there is truth that transcends 
every every bit of identity that we can associate with, um, absent our identity with Christ, um, there is there there are realities that we face in a broken world. Um, we we face the struggle of selfishness that exists in all of us. Um, I can't tell you how many cases I've dealt with where a, a person feels wronged because of a particularly a, a particular identity that they associate with. Mm. Um, if it's in a, an employment situation, it's somebody who feels that they were terminated or discriminated against because of their race. But then we look at the facts, and then we look into the investigation, and we see that there were other factors. There was, uh, you didn't show up to work on time. Uh, you didn't respect your colleagues, your coworkers, and your employer. Um, and, uh, and all these other things that came into play, but something that was very personal to you is what kind of controls the narrative for you. And every time I deal with those cases, my first approach is not to discredit or try to convince the person that it wasn't associated with what they identify as. But at the same time, I cannot love the person without speaking truth into their life. So we talk about what they feel. We talk about uh, their experience. Um, I listen. And um, that is such a, that's such a hard thing because every temptation for every person is to try to talk about how they feel. Um, and sometimes it's really, it's really important to, to deny that strong impulse because you are going to deny that person the ability to, the ability to communicate with you and in return you're denying them the opportunity to feel your love by listening sure and <laughs> that's such an important thing when it comes to issues of race um i've i've seen many many people cry in a very formal context in, in uh, telling their story um, because of how deeply and personally they hold their, their identity as a minority and the way they felt that they were treated. And if in those moments I was more focused on enlightening them and mm. in, in the way the world works... I would have missed the opportunity for them to truly uh, feel comforted by my presence and feel uh, validated that I care for them um, and then find some common understanding. Um, but on, on, the, on the flip side, there is truth. There, there, there is, a, there is a, a struggle in, in, in denying the things that come so easily to us as humans, the, the things that we can easily identify as, and in the context of Christianity, that our citizenship is not here. Mm -hmm. It's not as, our, uh, as our, our race or our country or our vocation, but it's the commonality that we have as followers of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, 
I always want to make sure that that's the first thing. That's the foundation of what, of what we're discussing. In a work context, that's kind of tough. But in a personal context, that's what I strive to, to, to focus on. And once we have that foundation, there's a lot you can build off, off of from there. Sure. I like how you, how you put in that you know, Christ is, is the center of, your, of, of how you love people. Um, I think it's extremely interesting that we missed the fact that, or we missed the fact that our ability to listen is, is key. Um, I think even as an African American, I'm, I'm not looking to say you're right. I'm not looking for you to tell me that I'm wrong, but what I want is to be seen as an individual, as a person and understanding that I am my own person. Um, an individual who struggles with alcoholism or, or drug addiction does not want to be viewed as a person who has, who is an addict. They want to be seen as an individual. I think that same concept is true for, for racism. We want to be seen as a person and accepted of who we are. Um, Carrie, you work in, um, in the news. You do a, a lot of work of, of stories that come about. I'm curious to understand your perception on racism and, and what uh, struggles you have in that in your profession. Sure. I think I have a story that's spot on for this <laughs> about my work. But before I was in Phoenix, I was in central Georgia and I was covering the KKK. Uh, in 2015, uh, and that was leading up to uh, election time, and it was the beginning of what we are now at in our country, with the state that we are, with how divisive and polarized and uh, outspoken, I'll yeah. say. Um, any side, every side, I don't know, they're, all of the sides are, are polarizing themselves. Um, but in doing so, what you had mentioned before was it's difficult for people to understand what you are going through because they find it hard to believe that that kind of tension still exists or people still act that way. So I'm from Los Angeles and I moved to central Georgia and uh, I had I woke up one morning and I lived in the, uh, you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes, nicest gated area in which it, for, it was not nice. I mean, I was in, yeah. So I just, I, you don't get paid anything in news. So I would, that's air quotes, nicest gated area meant it had a gate. Okay. And um, I had a death threat left it on my car and already as a woman and as a person of color who's light-skinned and tan and who gets mistaken for all different other kinds of ethnicities around the world uh it was so strange for me to already move to the south and have people say and treat treat me differently and some would call me a Yankee, and I thought, a, a Yankee? Well, I have a friend who plays for the Yankees, but okay, I'm from California. Like, we weren't a part of that, you know? <laughs> California didn't even become a state until, <laughs> you know, 1850. And others would treat me differently because of how I looked, and that was never a thing in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, you have to be whoever you are. If you have purple hair, you flaunt that. You walk around because your weirdness is who makes you you. So if you are not okay with the skin you're living in, you're the weird person. Mm -hmm. So I moved to the South, I'm covering the KKK, and they have rallies 
And it was so difficult. I did not have one friend, and I came from a large friend group, so it was very difficult for me to move from having a large friend group to nobody where I was and have people just say, okay, I trust you, and I know what you're talking about, but the Klan can't have rallies still. And I tell you, they would have, they would shut down the freeway so think, uh, think of the 51 over here, shut it down, not by blocking it off by any means, but what they would do is they would have a parade of trucks with large poles of the Confederate flag, and they would be marching around saying, the Klan this, the Klan that. And I had this death threat left on my car, so my friends already don't believe that the Klan has rallies by any means. And I tell you, there was a story where a guy our age was found hanging in a tree Sorry if this is like, <laughs> I should have given a warning. Um, was found hanging in a tree. He did not have any clothes on in an over 40 to 50 foot tall tree with no chair, no way to get up there. What did the news classify it as? Well, it has to be a suicide wow. when there is no way that it possibly could have been. So that is a good way of just painting what I'm about to tell you, the way that I was treated for someone who had touched on racism before, but had I was I just went straight into it, jumped into a black hole of it. And uh, so I wake up with this death threat on my car. I'll tell you, so I was living at the nicest gated community in town. And I had a girlfriend who was working with me at the station. We had the same size apartment. And I was getting charged more than her. And I knew this. And we talked to them and we confronted them together. And they still said, no, 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 no. Well, I had to bring the police in. And the police finally confronted them and said, why are you charging more? And it's because of my skin color. And I got all my money back. But it was I cannot even tell you how maddening that was. That's a totally other side note. That's what came up from this. So I get the death threat on my car, and I don't know how to feel. Immediately I go to the, the office, and the office laughs in my face. I am just fully crying in full breakdown mode. I don't know if the person, people are still watching me. And so I call my, I call the station. The news director at the time was white. My media boss was black. My media boss says, you get here right now. You, you, you do not talk to anyone. Don't even, don't even deal with the front office. You, I just need you safe. Get here right now. Mm. When I got there, uh, the attention was brought to my news director, who uh, is aware that there's racism, but did not have a person. I mean, he couldn't identify with what I was going through. My media <laughs> boss was on full, I'll say dad mode. Like He was <laughs> like, you get here now. I don't want you talking to anyone. I have got you. And it was not as immediate, I'll say, of a response. Mm. Um, not because he didn't value me as a human being or as an employee, but it just was not the same kind of, sure. he was not as triggered, we'll say. Uh, so I get there, we call the police, um, and uh, my media boss says, no, you go down to the police headquarters right now. Mind you, I used to go to the police headquarters every day and p pick out the police reports. They all know me there. Yeah. I show up at the police station, what do they do? The two white policemen have me sit in a chair and wait 45 minutes for the black policeman to come in to talk to me. Wow. I could not believe, I thought that I was in one of the 50 sitcoms that CBS aired before our, and after our news wow. that I was being treated that way. So the black police officer shows up and he is your typical 
you know, straw between the teeth. He's a little bit slower paced. And I think this is the genius they've given me to work with, with how immediate and dire this is. I'm telling you that my life is at stake right here. So I talked to him. He's not understanding any of this. And I'm thinking, did they just give this guy a badge? What is going on? <laughs> and immediately, and it takes me about 45 minutes. And no joke, I have full respect for law enforcement. But I had to have, I had to wave my hands and shake them in front of him and use all of the gestures, screaming, you know, jumping up and down for him. You know what he says after 45 minutes of talking to him? He puts his hand on his hip and he says, well, you must be pretty scared then. <laughs> and I said, are you kidding? You are outside your mind. So then he goes, well, here's what I'm going to do. Let's go down to your uh, front office right now. We'll go down together and we'll talk to him. So we get down there and they want nothing to do with this policeman. And I thought, I have never seen a more lack of respect for a, a, a man in uniform because of his Obviously, obviously, because of his skin color. So they had to, what, bring down a white officer wow. to talk to them. And I thought, where am I? I'm going to die here. I'm going to die here. I am in the twilight zone. And the white officer ends up talking to them, and he wraps everything up and says, okay, the black officer is going to wrap things up with you. And uh, once they do, their tone totally switches. You know, they go back to being completely disrespectful. But what the black officer was able to do uh, after I also told him what was happening with my rent is he was able to get that fixed for me. Um, so that that just a little bit of how our our society is functioning. Another little tidbit off of that was the following week or the week before that, I was laying out at our pool and I was reading a book. I was being respectful. There was no one else at the pool. Gated community, just relaxing, stressful day, whatever, reading, no music, I'm not causing a disturbance, was not throw, I was not jumping off the roof into the pool, and a police officer bum rushes the gate, and I immediately put my phone on, and this was probably, there had only been like maybe one or two prominent shootings that had happened, race-related shootings, so this was right when this was all really, our nation was starting to get really fired up about this, so immediately I thought, well, <laughs> I already know how I've been treated down here. Might as well film my death because yeah. that's what it felt like, honestly, living mm -hmm. down there. Uh, and I'd never felt like that before. And I'd never been treated like that before. But I you know, was like, well, this is how it's going down. And I'm just reading a book right now. So I, I, I put my phone up and I balance it against my book on the table next to the pool deck chairs. And uh, afraid that if he sees that it's recording, he's going to steal it or take it, you know, or shut it off, which would lead to, you know, more drama. And he confronts me, you know, mad as a hornet and just says, I've been getting all these calls about you. You know, you're the one, you're you, you, you're the one. And I'm just thinking, okay, I babysit for half the complex here. You know, everybody knows me as a Christian woman who's on the news out here. So I'm not up to any tomfoolery by any means. What could he possibly mean? And he says, I've been getting calls about you, and you're going to need to stop that right now. And I said, you know, excuse me, officer, I'm sorry, I'm not really understanding what the problem is here. If you don't mind explaining it to me, I'd be, you know, more than happy to accommodate whatever you need from me. He's like, don't give me that tone. <laughs> I thought, I'm going to die. Yeah. I'm straight up going to die right now. And I said, I'm sorry, officer, I, I'm not understanding where this is coming from. And he says, don't give me that lip. And he says, if I catch you around here at this pool one more time, I'm going to do what we did to your people with this pool. I'm going to pour bleach into the pool so you can't use it or you'll die. And I just thought, I, one, I thought, I'm definitely going to die. Whatever the next sentence is, I'm, I'm going to die. Two, 
I cannot believe somebody just said that to me. This is straight out of the 50s. This is 40s. I don't, how could somebody say that? And then your people, I have freckles. Like, what do you mean? I am mixed. What what is your people? My people is gonzo. You know, he calls himself a a whatever. You know, what do you mean my people? And so I just said, "Um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, officer, blah, blah. And he goes, don't give me that sass. I am just sincerely apologizing for something that I didn't have to apologize for, which is a very frustrating thing being, you know, a biracial woman in in America today. And he had his hand on his gun. He either was he was about to draw his gun on me or he did. And I just thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And uh, what was um, I don't I I mean, (laughs) to think that that would happen today. I'm, what ended up happening is I just said, okay, I'm going to pack my stuff. I'm going to head back to my apartment, Bob. And he says, if I can ever catch you around here one more time, uh, that will be the last time you see anyone. I think it's interesting that uh, a person like yourself, I mean, you speak fluently, you carry yourself well, um, you, uh, you've gone to college, you've, you've made a career for yourself. Um, to get that type of response from law enforcement and to be fearful for your life based off of your color, um, it, it's just mind-boggling that that's still a thing in, in our society. Um, to, to bring up, you know, I'm going to do what, what, what we used to do to your people back in the day, um, that's interesting that those type of words are still used um, still to this day. Um, I, I, I think that as we continue to have these conversations and open up to experiences that we've had, um, we can't neglect that those things have happened. We can't um, turn the cheek and say, you know, oh, it was just a bad day. Uh, these, these words are harmful. Um, and, and it's unfortunate that, that they continue. Um, JJ, what do you think about that, that very, um, what do you think about that experience and, and how, what does that do, um, to your psyche? Yeah, that was really hard to hear. Um, as Carrie and I started dating, I, I think we were dating at the time when she told me those stories. Um, and it's it's frustrating because they're because it's a reality um, and you can feel very helpless um, and I I personally wasn't very educated on what the system does in those instances until I got into my current work um, and that there are protections in those, situations i think there's a lack of education on uh, on the part of what people can do when they experience those situations um and uh that that there is a system in place um not only for people involved in government work if it's an officer who treats somebody that way but any type of a public accommodation um that you cannot be treated differently because of your race or, or a lot of uh, different uh, 
identity categories. Um, but it was hard. It was hard because I wanted to let my wife know that I was sorry for what she experienced. And at the same time, don't know how to associate with what she experienced. Um, and, uh, it's, and everything inside of me also wanted to fight against the idea that this was a systemic issue. Um, because if you, if like, uh, I, I've read a lot of laws and, and systems that we have in place, the, the laws as they are written, I don't believe are racist towards anyone. Um, I think that anytime you have humans involved in really anything that we do in life, there is going to be abuse and bigotry um, in both in every direction, um, and that's why we experience what we experience. Um, it's it's so great that I have a a partner in life that will be able to. Um, communicate with our children on what it's like to deal with these issues um, in a way that I couldn't. Um, but it's, it's also um, a sobering reminder that um, even though I, I grew up in an environment where I feel or I felt secure and safe in what was around me, what I had to face, what I struggled with, um, that People have different experiences. Um, it's it's important to seek the truth in in every experience, and sometimes we get bad examples of of what people are claiming as racism. I deal with it a lot. I deal with people that really misunderstand where their race plays a part in what they're experiencing, um, and and sometimes I'm called to to discuss that with them. Um, but there should be give and take on both sides that, um, for those who feel like people aren't racially mistreated, um, now you need to take a closer look. Um, you need to listen more. Um, but on on the flip side, there is, I don't want to call it an itchy trigger finger, but uh, it's essentially an, uh, a broad sweeping approach to any negativity that a person experiences. They, they treat it that it's because of their race and they're not giving the other person any, any dignity in that. Um, because sometimes we just have bad days and, and it, and it doesn't have to do with our, our race, but it's such a, it's such a hot button issue that it's easily drawn into the conversation. So there's, there's, there's give and take on both sides, I think. Yeah, I like the, um, I like that you said there's give and take um, for both sides. Uh, I, I think about it, you know, from from an African American perspective, of what is, what is my position, what does it appear to look like, what is it perceived to look like, and then really what happened. Um, I think sometimes we miss what it's perceived to look like. I think other people um, may view view their standpoint as oh, what I did was right. 
and looking at what the per, what the perception of it is, there could have been some opportunities there. I'm not saying that black people have done everything perfect, but I am saying that we've have opportunities that we can really learn from. Um, as you as you continue to grow in your marriage, and you continue to um, look at potentially uh, children, how do you, what are your plans to um, teach your children about being an African-American, but also balance um, them being Caucasian as well? Well, uh, first and foremost, um, if I have not taught them to first and foremost identify with their relationship with Jesus, then I've failed as a parent. Mm. Um, that there is always going to be injustice, um, unfortunately. And as somebody who works in a profession where we are called to seek justice, I know that there's flaws. There are always going to be flaws because we're humans. Um, but I have the opportunity as a parent to, one, hopefully teach our kids from my own mistakes and not being a good listener um, and not appreciating that I don't know everything. And, and sometimes I just need to, to sit be still and listen that God calls us to do that with him sometimes we need to do that with other people too Um, and we (laughs) we all have our own ideas um, and we want other people to know them that's why we have Twitter that's why (laughs) that's why we have all these different modes of communication where we can project our opinions on other people Um, but I, I if if my kids have First and foremost, the understanding that their purpose in life cannot be affected by their race. Their calling by God cannot be prevented by their skin color. Then that's a start. Um, I want them to walk humbly as Jesus did. Um, Jesus interacted with a lot of people. He interacted with highly religious Jews. Um, He reacted... Um, to uh, a lot of criticism, um, and he in, he he interacted with people that were dealing with major cultural issues issues um, during their time. Um, parables about the Samaritan person um, that was in the context of some pretty staunch racism sure. between the Jews and the Samaritans. Um, but Jesus approached the person first. Um, in, in, in every circumstance, we found him uh, approaching the person in love in, in an intentional way that they would understand. Um, and that means meeting people where they're at um, in a racially divisive culture. It means being sensitive to that. Like, we don't always have to agree with where these symptoms come from, what, what the policy prescription is for them, and how to resolve the issue. But if we can first start with the idea that, like, these are issues, 
and we need to hear each other out and not just yell over each other and try to make the better point. Um, that's a start. But then the second part, and it's equally as important, is to get to the truth. Where, where do these issues come from? Are these issues directly tied to race, or is there something deeper? Um, is there an inherent selfishness that we all struggle with um, that affects everyone? Um, and like, I, I, want, I want my kids to, to have that approach that Jesus taught us um, because it helps us avoid so much turmoil that comes from these issues. Um, there are relationships that are irreconcilable because we've allowed ourselves to be caught up in the emotion of, of, the, of the issue and weren't willing to love in spite of the, the emotion, uh, weren't willing to get past the emotion. Like the, I'm, uh, I'm going to be the first to say that like, these are deep-seated issues that we all deal with, um, and we all have our own personal experiences with them. Um, but if we don't individually make a conscious effort to die to ourselves in these conversations, then I don't think they're going to be fruitful. Um, so I, I, I hope that for first and foremost, my kids understand that. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Um, it's interesting that you say, uh, you have to create a way to listen and to also um, understand one another. And I think the fact that you're willing to expose yourself and say that you don't know all of the answers are one of the key factors that's going to propel you to being fruitful and having these conversations. Um, so many times, um, we all want to be heard. We all want our story to be heard. Um, but we also want to be in a situation to where um, we can identify, but also speak truth. Mm-hmm. And speaking truth is sometimes where we miss the mark. Um, speaking truth is going to um, really expose the inconsistency within the individual. Um, when we can expose the truth that God is who he is and how he loves us, I think that's really where the driving force is going to be to wedge the, the universe together. To say God is love and he loves all of us, we need to love people as well. I'm super excited that these conversations are starting to happen, that we're able to speak to one another about things that we've experienced um, and, and being able to articulate those things um, and create a platform that um, is accepted in those things. Now, obviously, we're not able to have all these conversations with everyone. Some people have different perspectives, um, different experiences that have them not being able to um, talk about it. Um, but for one, for one thing that I think is important is 
I've known you since high school. 2008 was when we graduated. And these conversations never happened. It, it, wasn't even, it wasn't even thought of. But I think it was a feeling that we felt. I think that there was something that we couldn't articulate. We, we couldn't put our finger on it. But we knew it was there. What was your thoughts in the early stages of, you know, in, in high school uh, about being involved in the urban culture, but being a minority as well? Yeah, uh, everything's contextualized. Um, I think we kind of discussed it before, even with the, we, even with the black experience, it looks different um, depending on where you live. Um, and uh, it's whoever's in the majority um, in in the community uh, kind of sets the tempo for for what's acceptable and what isn't. Um, so uh, in on one side of the country, it could look completely different than the other one, um, based solely off of who's there. Um, but it <laughs> there. I, I think part of it is genera- generationally um, that generations before us, I think, experienced racism in a more more public way than um, our current generation. Um, and, and and one of the one of the frustrations that we experience now is trying to navigate these waters with bad examples. I would say. Um, where, where we, we hear people make claims that they were treated a certain way because of their race. And then we find out more information and that just clearly wasn't the case. Mm. I mean, uh, the, I think the Jesse Smollett case was really interesting. Um, that, that we, we have this, this common understanding or at least this common, theme that we're told that we live in a society that is incredibly divisive based on race but we have somebody who for whatever reason felt compelled to concoct a story Mm. um, that would reveal that racism based off of what the environment here allegedly created was um and obviously, those are examples that are counterproductive <laughs> in so many different ways. Yeah. Um, and it's frustrating that they exist um, because it, it is counterproductive for growth and understanding between different races and what society is really um, projecting. Um, but... I honestly don't know. One of the things that's really challenging looking back on like our time in high school was that like, well, we, well, we definitely lived lived in a different time in terms of what was acceptable. Um, like what you could say, um, like the, the jokes that you could make. And, and I think part of that is just social media driven that like your words are much more public than they've ever been. Yeah. Um, like even just doing this podcast, um, it's you, you have to really parse your words in, in ways that you wouldn't do before. Um, so that, I think, adds to 
the differences that we see now compared to what we experienced as as kids. Um, do I think things are more racist now than when we were in high school? No, I don't. Um, do I think that our our country has progressed um, since the time of the the Civil Rights Act and before that? Incredibly, yes. Sure. Um, I've I've gotten to travel a bit around the world, and I can tell you that like the racism that I've seen in other countries is on a whole other level um, in, in the Middle East and even even in other parts of the world. Like there there isn't a true um, appreciation for um, for what racism looks like in different cultures. Mm. Like even even in, in it's funnily enough if you th- if you actually go and you look in different countries in Africa, yeah. there's racism even when it's only black people. Yeah. Um. It's and and that's existed throughout time. Sure. Um. This is this is just a, a a curse of being human. Um. And it's not going to go away through any policy prescription. Mm-hmm. The the only difference maker is Christ. That he was, he has been able to bridge the gap. That there are churches in Africa that are worshiping the same Jesus as churches in China, that are that are hidden from their government, as churches in South America, as churches in the United States. That we all have this common thread, and it's it's a we talked about it earlier a peace that passes understanding, but it's also this this connection that we have that that surpasses race in any ways that we can be divided in culture, um, that we can have this love for each other, um, that it's, it's something that you, you cannot know until you experience it, um, and, and live it. Um, but yeah, I, I think racism was a problem when we were in school. I think it's always going to be a problem because we live in a sinful world. Um, but the, the only way to solve it is to first look inwardly, look at ourselves. Are, are we truly loving? Well, first and foremost, we know that when we walk with Jesus, the only true love is through God. He's the only one who can show us how to love. Um, so we start there and we see where he takes us. Yeah. I like the fact that you said, we start there and we see where he takes us. The starting point, I'm curious, is I'm curious to see or to understand where do people start? Um, are they starting from their inward? Are they starting from um, the hurt? Are they, are they starting from the generations before them? Uh, where are they starting from? Um, Carrie, I'm interested to ke- to hear a little bit about your perception. I'm curious to hear a little bit about. I'm curious to hear a little bit about your um, perception of uh, how you feel when you enter a room, and there and you're the only um, minority there. Well, for starters, uh, the high school that I attended was an elite college prep high school. 
It's ranked one of the top 25, one of the top 30 high schools in our nation. And they didn't have a quota to meet, uh, but there was only (laughs) one full, you know, black person in my class of 100. And then there were three halves. And so we always laughed that, you know, we have two and a half black people in our class kind of thing. And the nicknames like Haffy and Oreo were tossed around because as my husband said, it was a different time. And uh, thankfully, no one by any means was using the N-word. But for a different example is our mascot was uh, the Rebels. And we had a Yosemite Sam Confederate flag holder as our mascot. And it was only about five years ago that they decided, hmm, maybe we should vote on this to maybe change it because something about this just doesn't sit right with us now. Um, And I was aware when I would walk into a room in Los Angeles when I was the only person who had a different skin color. Um, But I, I grew up in a place where Los Angeles is filled with all different kinds of cultures. We have a little different kind of town for every single kind of thing. You know, you speak several different pieces of different languages. At least you know the swear words from all the different grandmas, you know, when you're going to hang out at your friends' houses. Uh, So I never really had a handle on it, thankfully. Um, That was one of the few good things Los Angeles had to offer was um, how um, its lack of uh, homogeneity for just cultures people like everyone was different from a different place everyone wanted to share and the food oh the food um so great but when I moved to the south it was apparent it is it is a kickball teams you're either on one team or you're on the other team and there's one team that wins and one team that doesn't even it's it's not a fair fight they're not gonna play fair and that was really difficult for me to understand because it's different reading about it it's different seeing it on tv and it's different hearing about this is what's going to happen and then you are standing in that room being treated differently for no other reason besides how you look and you think okay let me review and assess the situation where i'm at i haven't done anything to deserve this kind of treatment so the only outlying thing is the color of my skin so here we are and you know you ask you, you gently nudge and ask people, like, oh, they can't be serious, right? Ha, ha, ha. No, they're serious. Yeah. And it's difficult to relay that to people who have not had those kind of experiences, like I said previously with my friends, because I would call them in fear, crying, trembling. And they would say, okay, well, we trust you, but I don't understand. Like, that can't, that could not have happened. It's like, I'm telling you, I almost just died. And and they're saying, yeah, but... It's like, no, no but. Like, I shouldn't be talking to you on the phone right now. And it really shook me. And there is definitely a a fear for our children, as any parent would have, especially with the... um, We were talking before about advantages and disadvantages. Mm -hmm. And having any kind of melatonin is, is considered a disadvantage, at least where we live. And... It's something, as JJ said before, you know, I, I knew exactly what he was going to say in that answer because we've talked about it several times, and I love him for that answer. And I just pray that God gives us the wisdom of what to say when they have those experiences, where they're treated unfairly, because it will happen. We live in a broken world, and I just pray that I have the words that are comforting and loving and uplifting, but also that they, uh, it'll be a teachable moment for them in some 
way, shape, or form so when the next time they have this kind of experience, it won't completely bring them to their knees. That's really good. That's really good. Um, lastly, for you, Carrie, who did you want to be like when you were a kid? That is a great question. So the U.S. Uh, women's national team for soccer just won, uh, and I was involved in a series of different conversations of, well, this is just so great because we have these role models that are these women, blah, 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 right? The conversations that I felt were most interesting were, uh, I grew up right across the street from the Rose Bowl, which is where the women won back in 98, I believe I was eight years old. I had the face paint, I played soccer. I idolized these women, had a Mia Hamm jersey. My dad <laughs> went the extra mile. She came into the, you know, the, the TV set. He waited in line to get it signed for me in a ball. Uh, but Brianna Scurry was their goalie. Wow. And she was a black woman who was a little overweight. She was an athlete, man. She could play. Yeah. She was a grizzly bear of a woman. <laughs> and she had hair that my classmates at high school would call, would deem Cheetos, oh, which okay. would make that it was just rolled oh, and curly. <laughs> um, and she was just amazing. She was an incredible woman. They never gave her the mic to talk. Wow. And I always thought that was so strange. Or one thing about the whole Barbies thing, I wasn't into Barbies, but I wasn't into dolls for a whole other reasons because none of them looked like me. Wow. That was so difficult. Uh, yeah, it was great that they started to have black Barbies, but there was no tan. Sure. There was no in the between. It was either blonde or the redhead. <laughs> Where? How did you? What? <laughs> you know? And, and that's something that uh, I look forward to if God blesses us with daughters or sons is that there is now representation and it's not in a divisive way, it's just that you can see yourself in these wow. roles, you know, that that, that uh, on TV, you know, there are all different kinds of cultures. There's um, a story this past week of a, a different tribe in Alaska is getting their own little Dora the Explorer, you know, and she fishes and, and is a karate fighter and all those kind of things. But uh, I think it's just really important because as a kid you have those questions of, why doesn't anyone look like me? Does that make me different? Am I bad? You know, inherently, is something wrong with me? And I think that just seeing all the different shades, and, and he laughs, but one of the biggest things in third grade was that we, uh, ended up, <laughs> we ended up getting the multicultural skin color pack of Crayola crayons wow. for the first time. And it was a big thing. I remember all the parents talking about it. But I, was, I, I remember not being allowed to be as excited as I wanted to be because I was bouncing off the walls. I finally, and they, they had all the kids holding the hands on the world, you know, on the, on the cover yeah. of the box. And I thought, yes, I don't have to color myself as brown or black. <laughs> like, I'm not a black crayon. <laughs> That's the only thing. Or like, what am I, pink or red? <laughs> like, what, what is, what is, you know? And I think that these things are so trivial in the human experience and it's not what matters. But when you're a kid, you don't, you don't have that in, you're not enlightened, you know? And so I think it's important that we have these kind of things and we have these kind of conversations so that they don't grow up inherently thinking that they're bad or something's wrong with them uh, from the get-go when there really isn't. Wow, isn't it interesting that we have this perception of ourselves that we're good or bad? Um, I'm so excited that we were able to have this conversation. Thank you guys both for joining in, opening up, really getting into the nitty gritty of racism and just our different perceptions, our viewpoints, our vantage points, and how we um, 
view things, but also how we can come and talk and, and listen to one another. Um, so thank you both so much for joining in. I look forward to hearing more about um, your endeavors in the future and uh, what things are going to look like. And uh, yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in to Even Alex Liggins, the podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook. You can also visit evenalexliggins.com. If you would like to be our next guest on the podcast, email connect at evenalexliggins.com. As always, I look forward to hearing your feedback and tune in for next week's podcast.